I get goosebumps and tears in my eyes when I think about the hug Bono gave me, putting his arm around my neck and, you know, just saying thank you. Welcome back to another special exclusive bonus. Super duper. Super duper Mm. interview episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. My name is Will, and joining me, as always, are my friends, Kat and John. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Hey there. How's it going? On our Monday shows, we talk about different aspects of of, of 1980s pop culture today, as uh, usual on these super duper, Mm. my words, uh, episodes... (laughs) Uh, we, we bring you an interview with somebody who was important to that 1980s media. And today is no different because today you're going to hear our chat with Larry the Duck Dunn. Wow. I knew he was going to quack. Now, when I pause, just know <laughs> that I now know what John's going to do. It's not tough. I technically, t- I quack every time you say duck, regardless of what this, whatever the there reason is. If someone throws something at you and you holler duck, I yeah. go wah and get hit with it. I don't duck. Right. Yeah, that's predictable. There you go. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, yeah, such a, you know, but, uh, prognosticator of John's uh, behavior so much. He's just really predictable, as Kat said. Uh, it's anyway, so Larry the Duck. Let's talk about Larry for a moment, because we're going to be speaking with him in just a few moments. He was the longtime music director for WLIR throughout the 1980s, and he was the youngest on-air uh, personality there at that radio station as well. And as yep. really? we're going to learn, we're going to talk to Larry about how important LIR, the role they played in shaping 1980s music. I mean, seriously, it's hard to mm-hmm. uh, overstate this. This is a radio station, and at the time, uh, I, don't, I don't know, there, were, there, there was that station, there was ROQ in LA. I don't know that there was any station in the Midwest or South or other areas that were doing mm-hmm. this type of thing. And maybe not mm-hmm. just because how it took you know, the amount of time or logistics of getting new music to these areas. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll ask Larry how, mm-hmm. how they got their new records, but... As a result of their willingness to play new music and new wave music while everybody else was playing the same classic rock on every other station in, in the New York area, mm. ah. we got to hear you too. We got to hear Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, Howard Jones, and on and I'm on grateful. and on. Seriously. Grateful to Larry the Duck. You know, I didn't have the benefit of growing up in the in the region where you were, but yeah. it reminds me a lot. I just recently watched a documentary about The V, which was the music, music video station in Boston. Mm that had much the same vibe. And while MTV was doing their thing, and this is pre-VH1, this little independent video music thing, and they started, they were like a groundswell, like this grassroots thing, and they would start getting huge celebrities when they came through Boston, like going to the V mm-hmm. was like going to see friends because all the DJs were there and oh, they, and they would get little, you know, little heard of bands would come through there that didn't even have videos yet. They would interview them. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's the kind of thing that, you know, with the advent of payola that we know about and later that kind of fell by the wayside, but little independent stations mm. like the, the V and like LIR right. could do something, as you said, that's shaping what ended up being our pop music that right. otherwise we might not have heard about. We might not have heard about these bands unless we, well, unless somebody told us about them. Otherwise, you know, we didn't have the internet to look it up. So yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, in a situation with LIRs, had they not broken these bands, the other top 40 stations, as they became top 40 stations, wouldn't be playing these records yeah. because, you know, they wouldn't have Because they're not to top be 40 right. yet. Chicken or egg right. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this yeah. got me thinking about how important radio was generally in my life throughout the 1980s. And I want to get your guys' thoughts on that as well. So- uh, we're mm-hmm. going to talk about uh, that on our next episode 
spot. Oh, hey. right. I'll take notes. I'll be ready. All right. Yeah. Uh, but I want to share with I'll, I'll have my notes yes. ready, too. Okay. You know what? Wait till the very end, though, to tell us all of them at once. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Will do. I'll make a note of that. Uh, love you. You're um, ruining the illusion. <laughs> so immediately uh, thinking about radio and thinking about I want to talk to you guys about radio on our next episode. It just got me thinking about all these mm-hmm. different scenarios, situations in my life that involved a radio. And there's lots. And I'll share most of them with you when we talk again. But mm-hmm. uh, but this is how important radio was, right? Now, look, it was in different aspects of my life. I woke up to radio, my mom playing mm-hmm. the radio. Summers and car yeah. trips, uh, the radio was always playing. Oftentimes it was my parents' music. What they were into later on, it became Top 40, which was then our music. Cause, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and as you got older, as a teenager, you know, you, you were able to part of your identity was what music you chose to play or what mm-hmm. station you listened mm-hmm. to on the radio, I think. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, so, mm-hmm. and again, I'm try- trying to bring it back to, we're not talking about music generally. We're talking about radio specifically as a media the radio for us. Yeah, so again, yeah. for having a radio in your car, therefore was important for your friends to be in the car, yeah. play the radio. And I don't know if you guys had this experience cruising mm-hmm. 100% <laughs> the ocean yep. avenue yeah. strip oh yeah <laughs> now you have clearly stated that you went cruising through the piggly wiggly parking lot cat we know that it wasn't <laughs> sunset avenue right <laughs> i might have yeah been doing donuts <laughs> <laughs> watch out for the light post yeah were you blasting something when you were uh, on the radio with the windows down doing donuts always yeah grocery shopping music I- I wasn't always in charge of the radio, but yeah, <laughs> but usually it was Bon Jovi or something like that. <laughs> so as when I was growing up, you know, the street that people cruised where I lived there in Jersey City, New Jersey was Central mm-hmm. Avenue, which was all the retail and the fast food places. Mm-hmm. And as I was younger, walking down the avenue to hang out with friends or whatever, because you were able to do that when you were a kid in the 80s, you just went wherever. You just went. As a young person, I would observe guys driving by in there, you know, <laughs> their uh, Camaros and their, you know, Firebirds mm-hmm. and their- I rocks know, and yeah. With the radios down, blasting music. Oftentimes they ha- were outfitted with these giant, you know, uh, speakers in the back, just vibrating the, st- yep. the, the windows in the stores as they drove by. Fancy radios that I couldn't afford. So eventually when I became a teen, uh, you know, we, we had uh, used cars, you know, hand-me-down cars or whatever. But I think the first car that I was able to drive around with as a teenager, independently of my parents, was because my buddy, Mm -hmm. Craig, was older than me and had his license, which meant we were able to drive his Uh dad's car. Now, unfortunately, Uh it was a uh, Volkswagen Golf, which is not a sexy car. (laughs) Yeah. So we had that. But one. it's a car. You know what? It's it's wheels. It's reliable. That's yes. right. Yeah. Yeah. And we were counting yeah. on still with the with the VW Golf driving down the avenue, uh, windows down, playing whatever music. Now, unfortunately, where I lived it was also bad with regard to car or radio theft. So your radios are stolen oh. all of the time. You'd wake up, your windows are smashed. Car ah. alarms are going off all hours of the night. So eventually, yeah. uh, Craig's dad's car, the radio was stolen. So now we just had this. Mm, no. You know, uh, there's just a hole where the radio should be, mm-hmm. but we Double didn't, we didn't <laughs> yes. want to be deterred from doing, listening to the radio and probably driving down the street. So mm-hmm. uh, again, I was a DJ already for many years at this point. So what I did was I took my radio, which was ready from my house, which was already too impractically oh large. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, the wires that would have connected, it was essentially a boom box that I took apart. The yeah. wires that would have connected to the speakers I cut off the speakers, get rid of the speakers. We don't need those. 
And I took the wires out of the dashboard where the radio should be. And I figured out which ones went to the speakers in the car and I wired them together. And so with this giant piece of a old boombox between my knees, Mm -hmm. essentially on the passenger side of the car. And that's running on batteries, like seven double D's. Exactly. Yes. Batteries. We know we Wait, I think, I, think I think they're just called D-cell. That may be a Freudian slip. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're single D's. My mistake. Yeah, get a little of these batteries. But yeah, so we knew it was a clock ticking. Once we put those batteries, a fresh set of uh, sexy batteries, we had to get going. Very sexy. Batteries. So we're driving down the avenue when we first got this uh, you know, jury rigged uh, set up in my, between my legs with wires. It looked like it looked like uh, the, the the where the radio should have been almost looked like like a robot had was throwing up because it was like a opening, <laughs> the wires cascading out, yeah. gaping maw with all these. And most of the wires we didn't need. We just needed a few of the mm-hmm. wires, you know, to get to the speakers in the back or whatever. Anyway, we're driving down the avenue and we oh do we do come across some. This is our fantasy. That some attractive women, you know, our age would want to ride. Mm-hmm. That's that's what happened. That's what we observed as kids. <laughs> so we do wind up getting these two teenage girls, you know, again our age, mm-hmm. in the car. Oh wow! And we're driving and we have music on. The, yeah, we're vibing. <laughs> got them we got in, the in the golf. Hooray, chloroform! Well, no, no, they stepped. They willingly approached and got in the car. Okay. okay. But as so. we're driving. One of them's like, hey, you know what? Put on, and they call for a different radio oh. station. Oh, no. And they lean oh. forward to change it themselves. You know, and first of all, it's like, wow, this oh, girl, boy. she smells fantastic. It's like, <laughs> you know, leaning between us, getting changed in the radio. And then oh my gosh. she realizes it's just a giant hole there with wires hanging out. <laughs> and it's as if we're doing black magic to make music come out. She's now suddenly terrified of the vehicle she got into. How are you doing this? Where is this music coming from? And she sees the giant contraption between my legs with all these wires, you know. Brag much? They asked to get out immediately. Oh, really? So they were in the car all of, I don't know, hearing one song that they asked us to change. Wow. Radio was important in the 1980s. So I have never told you this story, but I'm about to. Yes. It's my car radio story. Yeah. Growing up as a child, you watch your parents operate things. Here, how do you drive? All right. You hold the wheel and you do this. How do you cook? You take a pan and a skillet, you know, a spatula. Mm -hmm. And so you watch your parents use the radio. Now, keep in mind, this is back when the radio was not a flat face thing. You had these two posts Mm -hmm. and one of them you would turn and that would be tuning the radio. And the other one had a knob you turned. That was the volume, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would always witness my parents, you know, tuning the radio and they would reach up to the dial and they would turn it, turn it, turn it, turn it, turn it. And Fine, and they're like, don't touch the radio, don't touch the radio. And then finally one day, and I'm, you know, an innocent young lad of eight or nine, maybe, <laughs> and they're like, do you want to pick a radio station? I'm like, hell yeah, I want to pick a radio station. Fantastic. <laughs> but only, like, I never got a manual for the car radio. I only learned by observing. Mm-hmm. And so what it appeared people were doing, what they were doing was they would turn the knob, they would release their grip, turn their hand back, grasp the knob, oh, and turn it again. right, right, right. 
But to my mind, they were just wiggling it back and forth. And so when I went to find the radio station, I just go squeak, squonk, squeak, squonk, squeak, squonk, squeak, squonk, squeak, squonk, just back and forth. Because I didn't know you let go of it before turning your wrist again. And they're like, oh what are you gosh. doing? And it was a further several months before I was allowed to try to tune the radio again. Because they're like, oh what are you doing to it? It's maddening. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, I love it. But yes, a very important part. It, so, but it was it was an opportunity that I had not been afforded, and it was it was awesome even to get a chance to pick the radio mm-hmm. station because it was it was oh, almost yeah. the sacrosanct yeah. thing that only mom and dad did. Right. Radio um, was important enough to me that my sister and I wanted to pretend to be DJs, and we would record ourselves on one of those, you know, the tape recorders with the handle. Oh you know, yeah. The buttons yeah. Right inside the handle and the mic. Yeah, we found one of those in my grandparents' house, and that was it. And we loved to pretend to be DJs from our <laughs> from the Z100 mm-hmm. radio station, Scott Shannon and um, Jack DeWack. He yeah. still remembers the names. Yeah, wow. Jack DeWack, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Ross mm-hmm. Britton. That yep. was another one. And we made up our own little characters to go along with this. Cat and the Rat. Yeah, we... <laughs> there actually... There was... There was a rat in a rat too. I think that was my cousins. <laughs> they, they would keep track of all skeeter. the characters. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It was it's just like Pee Wee's Playhouse on the radio. Yeah. The cat was running there. <laughs> it was. And we spent hours, hours and hours just pretending to have our own hmm. radio station. But we, we also called it Z100. That's so <laughs> we weren't very original. All right, cat, you're going to have to give me a clip of that. We're going to listen to that on the next episode. Oh. Oh, there we go. All right. Yep. Gotta hear oh, I bet I can dig cat. it up. Okay. All right, we'll hold you to it. I'm going to dig it up. All right. But meanwhile, <laughs> let's listen to a, an actual DJ who was uh, actually, uh, you know, again, changing uh, radio and our lives as mm-hmm. a result. Uh, through, and no, seriously, I, I say that with no, not exaggerating. I really do believe mm-hmm. it's not, no hyperbole. Uh, in a moment, we'll be right back with our guest today, Larry the Duck Dunn. Where- For most of the 1980s, our guest today was the music director for the legendary New York radio station WLIR. There, he helped introduce New York and then the world to bands that had yet to receive radio play in the U.S., including U2, Duran Duran, and Howard Jones, among countless others. Today, he continues to spin the music he championed 40 years ago from the studios of Sirius XM, where he can be heard on First Wave 33, Monday through Fridays, and many Saturdays too. And in February 2024, you can join our guest and a number of other 1980s icons, including Debbie Gibson, Air Supply, and Soft Cell when they set sail on the next voyage of the 80s cruise. Visit the80scruise.com for more information. Please welcome to the show, Larry the Duck Dunn. Thank you, Will. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Great to be here. You know, it's, I, I almost feel like I, I'd be introducing someone in a costume or something, you know? It's... <laughs> I think in the 1980s, it wouldn't have phased me. You know, we had so many characters, you know, like yourself, some on-air personalities that had these 
fun names, but I don't know now. I feel like, huh. Yeah, I mean, at the time, what happened was they used to call me, because Donald the Duck Dunn was the bass player for Booker T and the MGs and the Blues Brothers, right. the guy that smoked the pipe, right? He died a few years ago. Oh. And I had a DJ, John DeBello, used to call me Duck Dunn on the air. Never really liked the Duck Dunn thing, but I remembered um, my good friend Jed the Fish, KROQ, K-Rock in Los Angeles, and I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, people remember nicknames, ratings-wise. Um so I said to my program director, Des Mag, what do you think if I flip it? He goes, go for it. Of course, when I got to Sirius 20 years ago, my anniversary is coming up on May 27th, 20 years. You believe our first oh. wave? I said, can I go back to my real name? They said, they don't know you by your real name. They only know he was Larry the Duck. Or Larry the Duck. Yeah, Sirius would be getting emails. Why did you get rid of Larry the Duck? We don't like this other guy. He's terrible. <laughs> and at the time, it was a ratings thing. But, you know, we don't care about ratings on Sirius. Right. Like so. Maybe they do, but they, you know, we don't care right. about the ratings. That's so. Right, that's so pa passe ratings. We're above that. So, so hey, look, I'm so glad, I'm so grateful to speak with you today for many reasons. There's lots of things I want to touch base with you on, but most importantly, or first and foremost, is the role that you played and LIR played, or the two of you together played in ushering in new music into the 1980s, new songs, bands that we hadn't heard yet, bands that hadn't made the mainstream yet, bands that would later become top 40, but LIR had them on first, you know, thanks in part to your golden ears. Uh, but before you were uh, a, an on-air personality, before you were the music director of the radio station, you were first an intern there while you attended St. John's University. And I believe it's the same St. John's University that D sings about, right? And, and Sucker MCs. Yes, sir. All right, very good. Same school, St. John's University. I'm on the board and I, I taught there. I taught radio announcing. So when you were going there, you're interning at LIR. Did you have a, were you studying communications? Was it your goal to be a, a DJ? Yeah, it's a great question because my my major was communication arts. And at the beginning of my junior year, I always told my students at the time, you know, if, if intern where you want to work, if you want to work mm -hmm. at ESPN, intern at ESPN, right? Get your foot in the door. I always wanted to work. I always wanted to be a DJ at LIR. That was my dream. That's what I wanted to do. So when I asked Dr. Franzetti at St. John's for the internship, he granted it. It was a six credit internship. I got an A. And at the end of that, they actually hired me. They put me in the music department, then the programming department, and then eventually I went on the air part-time about three weeks after I graduated from St. John's, and then eventually I became the music director and full-time on the air, too. And the youngest on-air staff member, right? And, and yes. Uh, yeah, most of the DJs around me were about 10 years older. Um, Bob Wall was four days older than me, so technically... Oh. <laughs> I was the youngest by four days. You said you wanted to be on LIR. Now, ultimately, look, the story is in a couple of years, and we'll, I want to talk about this, how the the uh, format changes. But when you're wanting to be on LIR, what is it playing at the time that attracts you to the station? Great question. The thing was we were kind of skewing new music and the avant-garde bands from New York, you know, like Talking Heads and the Ramones, Television, Blondie. And yet we were still playing the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers. You know, we mm. were skirting it to Tom Petty. He was launching as a new artist. The Police launched as a new artist in 78. We even dabbled a little bit with the Sex Pistols, but we were going through, as Dennis would once say, if we're on two skates, ice skates, the mm -hmm. skates are starting to go apart. <laughs> That's exactly what was happening. And something right. finally had to give. So we actually became what was called the New Music Station. But I was on both sides of the format. So we were playing everything from reggae, jazz, rock, classic rock, aggressive rock, yet the new wave elements that we knew later on. And it was just one big mishmash of a lot of stuff, a lot of genres going on at the same time. And finally, because there were five radio stations in New York that were considered, you know, um, 
a classic rock or a rock oriented uh, format, right. we had to make a decision because we were just one of five and we had to differentiate ourselves. And that's why we went to the new music station, not the new wave station, the new music station. Right. And then when people say, so what artists did you break? That list is really long, yeah. like very long. Yeah. So and you're talking about Dennis, Dennis McNamara, the program director at the time. Um, if I recall correctly, I'm just trying to remember from year, maybe months, years ago, maybe reading about the history of radio in the 1980s that we had a lot of radio stations were having somewhat of an identity crisis or certainly making transitions because I believe in the seventies sort of disco was King. Mm -hmm. Right. And then folks, as they saw the, you know, disco was waning. We had, a, they had to find some other way of satisfying listeners and keeping listeners. And so folks, like you're saying, moved to the rock format. Check me on that so far. Is that well, I mean, the two things happen. One radio stations gravitated more to the rock format or as seventies disco started to wane, remember the clubs needed another niche. And that's when they went from seventies disco to set late seventies, early eighties, new wave dance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these traditional discos, like for example, on Long Island, you had uncle Sam's. So during the week it became spit. Mm -hmm. So the weekends were mm -hmm. the disco seventies, uncle Sam's during the week, alternative seventies, eighties spit same Metro 700 disco in Franklin square. 007, they reversed the 700 to make it 007. Uh, Reds, Decameron, same concept. So they were trying to figure out how to maximize the clubs during the week and on the weekend. And as the disco scene started to wane, then that's when the new wave side during the week took over the weekend. Right. And that's how the transition happened from a monetary point of view and sociologically too. Right. So so when, when uh, you know, you say that you, you go to the, become the new music station, Oh, you're the new music station, and then you transition, you start getting rid of the rock aspects of it, I suppose. Um, what is this decision there? Is it just strictly to distinguish yourself? And if so, I mean, look, the other stations are playing it safe. They're thinking, look, we, we, we feel comfortable that there's an audience for this. But as a business decision, uh, Dennis has to be comfortable that there's going to be enough listeners to stay with you, right? Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things happened. So there were five AOR, album-oriented rock stations right. in New York. Right. So you had NEWFM, DLJ, LIR, BAB, and at that time, a commercial free summer station with APP. So we had to make a business decision. I think Ellen told the story very well in New Wave Dare to be different right. that we had to make a case that we weren't shedding our rock roots, meaning the cult, the Ramones, or Squeeze, or some of the bands that would be traditional rock bands, I right. guess is the best way to explain it. But we had to make a business decision on being different. And that's why Dare to be Different became our tagline, because we wanted to separate ourselves from the other radio stations in New York. Right. We wanted to make our own sound, our own niche, but not just the songs, but what happened in between the songs. So, for example, we would actually drop in movie clips in between the songs if it was thematic to the song. Right. We throw in cartoon things like the Jetsons, the Flintstones. People would go, where the hell did that come from? You know, <laughs> Or Monty Python. Yep. Or National Lampoon or Fire Sign Theater. So these were the things, even Cheech and Chong at one point too, if it made sense to the song. And what right. we were doing was we were getting even more creative on the air. So we were hired, one, for musical knowledge, two, not for voice as much, but for production knowledge, creativity, and the spirit of having fun. Right. I'm being a little whacked. Yeah. It's interesting, like the way you d describe it, it's sort of prescient in the sense, if you think about how media is today, you know, I mean, you think about TikToks and I don't know, I don't know all these things very well, but TikTok or Instagram or whatever, where you can scroll through different content that's, and because of these algorithms, they feed you different little short, you know, two, three minute things that are related. And it creates an experience, you know, that uh, 
the user's able to go, a listener's able to go on. It, LIR was doing that, you know, what, 40 years ago. That's pretty, uh, you know, prescient. We were. I think we're a little ahead of our time. It's a shame that the license actually ran out eventually. Yeah. yeah. So The FCC license. Right. Yeah. Was that in 87, right, or something like that? Uh, the last show I did with Donna Donna was a 12-hour marathon. It was December 17th, 1987, and we're on the front page of the New York Times the next day, December 18th, 1987. So when you talk about, you know, uh, breaking bands, and like you, you made a point, there's a long list. Uh, how does, you know, this station in Long Island, New York, go about finding bands that ultimately become of what we think of, like, you know, the second uh, British invasion and, uh, and beyond? So we had sources, yeah. So the two big importers we used was Dutch East India and Rockville Center, New York. Dennis flew to London to do the deal with Rough Trade. The Rough Trade is a label, Rough Trade as a record store. They would get all the imports in. And what the deal was, was every Thursday, they would ship us one box of new releases. Wow. <laughs> some of them were signed, some were not signed. Some were just test pressings. And that box would go, he throw to JFK. My staff, as the music director, my staff would meet the plane, get the box, bring it to me. I'd bring it home Thursday night, and that was the beginning of weeding it through. So between the Dutch East box and then the record labels themselves and right. what they had, some things that were alternative, some things that were meant for college radio stations here in this country domestically. But then Rough Trade became a real fighting that golden nugget, you know, the needle in the haystack, so to speak, musically. That's where we found it, between those three sources. Wow. I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about this. It's so, it's so excited, uh, exciting to, I, I think about my experience in the eighties, just talking to the, you know, the, 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 the kids that worked at the record store, they oftentimes had someone who was spinning records at a record store, just trying to find out what was new and hot. You had it before that, you know, we're looking through yeah, prints I mean, a, in a store. A week you gotta, ago, I did a panel discussion yeah. with Dennis um, and Max and Donna Donna. And I actually brought the physical vinyl that I had in those boxes that I say, wow. for example, I brought with me um, there was just a test pressing, wasn't signed, a black magic marker on a white label, it was vinyl, yeah. and it said M-A-R-R-S, and it was pump up the uh, volume. Mar of course. Mars. So I brought that, with me. I put them on easels so people could understand mm -hmm. what we were looking at, and physically what we saw, ironically, it was record store day. Mm. Oh, perfect. And it was Earth Day that day too, so it just happened to all kind of fall <laughs> together on this panel discussion that we did. Yeah. But it was interesting to kind of break down how we got there. Now, I saw like pump up the volume. I realized immediately it was a hit. I called Dennis Friday. I said, holy shit, we have something here. And mm. I said, let me test it. So I would normally test things on Sunday night. So the import show from the box would be off the boat. And mm. that would give me at least two and a half days to go through all the vinyl to make sure that I had the right nuggets for a one-hour show every Sunday night. Right. I said, I'm spinning at the Malibu, <laughs> which was a nightclub on Long Island held right. about 2,000 people. And I spun it for the dance floor. Now, you got to realize I'm live on the air uh, and there's no delay and I'm live in the club. No bathroom break, five hours, 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. <laughs> I played this like it's like doing a focus group yeah. and the place went nuts. So I played it off the boat the next night. And then Dennis and I basically put it on the air rotation. We added it. What we, we would used to do is we just put it in the new music bin and it was up to the jocks to play mm. it or not play it. They had freedom of choice. There was no playlist. Okay. So we started playing it on Monday morning, like constantly. When I say constantly, we would never repeat anything within three hours or so. But we had to drop the call letters into the middle of the song because there were mm. radio stations that knew about the song. It went viral and they were trying to copy it off the air. Now, it's illegal to rebroadcast wow. someone else's thing. Sure. But they would still try to do it. So you drop the call letters in the song so that if they tried to yeah. or even attempt to, 
the LRCOL letters would be buried in the salt. Right. So that's what that was our little trick. I thought that's a good one for it too, because there's so much happening constantly that if they were to try to edit that out, it would probably, you know, it would be recognizable by folks familiar with it from listening on on LIR. So, like you mentioned, you know, you worked at Malibu, and uh, I know you did. You worked at some other clubs too, and you're able to test at least you know pump up the volume there. But I, I don't imagine you had that luxury as often what else how did you identify what you thought might be a hit there are times that i thought a song would not be a dance hit would be a dance hit yeah. like violent fed mm. blister in the sun there's something about that song right that when you put on that like if i the focus group is if they're starting to see people walk away from the dance floor sure. and you know you got a little <laughs> bit of an issue there right yeah. <laughs> there are certain songs you kept in your back pocket that worked obviously you just can't get enough by depeche mode that would work for some reason, Sanctuary by the Cults has made the people go, wow, hmm. and they just danced to it. Now, there was a dance mix of it, too. But there were certain little gems that people, it didn't matter if it seemed like it was an obvious dance hit, because Blister in the Sun, to me, is not an obvious dance hit. Right. But as speaking to Gordon Gano about it, he didn't realize that the song would take off in that direction the way it did. Right. So it was things like that that I would test. Now, there were other things that I would test that I would think, well, is it a hit or not a hit? And maybe I'd react in the club, or if it wasn't meant for the club, maybe on off the boat on Sunday night. So one example would be, I always love this song, uh, the Scottish band, The Blue Knot, okay. a song called Tinseltown in the Rain. Mm. I would play that, and the people in the club would come up to me and say, it's cool. Now, is that something they, maybe early on in the dance evening, you would play it and people would start to get in the groove? But then if I played it off the boat, it was meant more for the masses, right? Because the club was one thing. You know, what you're doing on the radio is meant for more of a wider spectrum of voice. Sure. So you mentioned that the DJ didn't have a playlist, but I, I, my, my understanding is, is that, you know, your role, at least, at, you know, in addition to being an on-air, as you mentioned, it was your music director for the better part of the 1980s. What's the role of a music director if not to create, you know, in other, other places we understand music directors, program directors are putting these lists together and you've got to stick to the list. And uh, what is the, what is the role at LIR though? So the model is the, this Dennis is the program director, right? So Dennis hires the air talent. Dennis has the final say the music director is number two to the program director. So what the music director has to do, he has to be the human filter and he has to deal with the record labels, which is a whole different story because they have a marketing strategy and they want you to play a certain song at a certain time and not jump ahead to the next single or what they perceive to be the next single. We were like, screw the rules. Mm. There are no rules. It's our radio station. We program it the way we do. Now, what we did do was we actually would have music. We, we'd have weekly meetings with every DJ and we'd go through everything mm -hmm. that we thought was really cool. So it became like a two-hour listening session of what we liked, what we didn't like. Now, Dennis and I would do our own meeting first to say, eh, yeah, no, maybe. Let's see what they say. Mm -hmm. Right. So Dennis and I would meet first. Then we'd have, that was on Monday. Then on Tuesday, we'd bring the staff together and then we'd start to listen to songs together. And um, we usually met at someone's house or my apartment or wherever it was. And we kind of took turns a little bit with that. So we had a lot of great interaction. Unfortunately, someone had to be on the air. Mm -hmm. So sure. we tried to alternate the time so that we tried to get everybody involved. So it was inclusion. But the music director and the program director basically have their last, I had the next, last, Next last to say, Dennis had the last say. Mm -hmm. And then whatever we added that we thought was deemed to be on the air, yeah. they could mix in. You know, I mean, the idea was to play as much music as possible, but also to back it up with songs that, you know, we felt were relevant. You know, like, for example, a song like Foxhole from television mm -hmm. may have been, it came out in 1978. 
but this is 1981. So we kind of dip back a little bit right. in the past. We kind of mixed it in. Also, the joy of being a DJ is the art of the segue, right? Mm -hmm. Having songs that flow into each other. Maybe the way one song ends and the other song begins sure. is like a flavor to itself. It was just pure creativity with no rules. Right. And then we drop in movie drop-ins or, for example, like the Screamer of the Week. Sometimes I actually sat behind Tom Hanks at the Emmys one year. <laughs> and I said, Tom, you know, that laugh in the money pit when the bathtub pulls through the ceiling and you just like, you just lose it with that laugh. I said, we used to play that on the air. It's probably the greatest laugh of all time. He goes to me, I wish I made money on that laugh. I remember that laugh. It was really fun to do that laugh. I mean, so he got into this conversation with me, but it's stuff like that. And I had to try to explain to him what we were doing with the laugh. Um, <laughs> you know, so it really became thematic in, in many ways. Right. So you mentioned the Screamer of the Week. So this is where, where the actual listeners get to vote on what they are, they believe is the top new song of the week. Every DJ had their own pick. And we'd all like, you know, when we're on the air, uh, we'd, we'd be charging with, this is why this should be the best new song of the week. And then when it wasn't our shift, we actually had little recordings from ourselves that we rotated through everybody's show that when, let's say it was the replacements, I'll be you. And it's Donna Donna's pick, right? Before we play, I'll be you. We play a little clip from Donna that's 20 seconds long, like both of the songs, the Scream of the Week. This is my pick, the Donna Donna pick, or this is the Larry the Duck pick. And then we crowned a champion every Thursday night at 10 o'clock. And, and the phones were fast and furious. Mm. There was no internet. It was just people calling in and it was wild. Yeah. And it went, sometimes it went down the last minute. When you talk about calling in uh, to radio stations, gosh, that was such a big part of, you know, growing up in the 1980s, trying to be the 10th caller or voting on something like that. So exciting. Well, there was no email. There was no internet. Yeah. There was no social media. So the direct contact through the phone to the listener. And that was the fun part, you know, where people would call in, you know, they'd say something funny or maybe they wouldn't. They'd say, screw that. You know, you are dismissed. Hang up the phone, <laughs> go to the next caller. Right. You know, and the technology was changing too because for the radio stations, if they had dead spots in their signal, right? So for, for FM, you want two things. You want height and power. The higher you are, right, the further the horizon. But sometimes it'd be a hill that would block the signal. So it, they would get what was called translators, which actually they use today in mobile technology for couponing and super and um, orange stores, right? They have, they're like mini translators where it'll pick up your mobile device for couponing and things like that. So that was the early stages of that technology. And the translators would actually fill in the gaps of your signal that you couldn't reach. And when people joke about putting the aluminum around the antenna and standing on one foot trying to reach out this way to get the signal, you know, a lot of that is true. You know, we used to teach people to ground signal, right? Take copper wire and just tie it to a cold water pipe. Right. And sure enough, your signal would get better. Little tips like that. Right. Yeah, you remind me of putting aluminum foil now on my rabbit ears. Yeah, there you There's go. TV work in there. <laughs> so in addition to being an on-air talent, you also did you did interviews with a number of different uh, up-and-coming yeah. artists. Do you have a, a favorite uh, interview you could share with us or maybe a least favorite interview? Well, so I, I say three things. One, yeah. I think in terms of bands that we broke, I mean, I think U2 is at the top of the, at the pile. And wow. I think that the band recognizes that. Um, look, they acknowledge us when they did the war tour at the Nassau Coliseum. That clip is actually in the movie, No Way Dare to Be Different. Mm -hmm. We got off the soundboard. We had it on the air the next morning with Bono, you know, saying LIR and the fact that you remember they played the Malibu in December of 1981. It was the last night of the October tour. About, I guess during the Innocence and Experience story, I just happened to be up in the studios at Sirius XM, and we did a last-minute interview with YouTube. They agreed two hours before the interview. It was an off night at the Garden, and I spent time with all four of them, and they all remembered. They hugged wow. me. They thanked me. I mean, I get 
I get goosebumps and tears in my eyes when I think about the hug Philo gave me, wow. putting his arm around my neck and, mm. you know, just saying thank you. They don't forget. They don't forget. And then Paul McGinnis didn't forget. He's in the movie. He's the manager of YouTube. So number one, I'd have to say if I had a point to one band, there were too many to really name in this interview, but that was one top of the pops, I guess. Um, least favorite interview, Frank Zappa. Mm. <laughs> Frank Zappa before we changed the format and, and he was difficult. You know, if he didn't like the question, it was no, no, right, no, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was horrible. My favorite interview was actually non-musical. It was Jim Henson, the great Muppeteer. Right. When okay. the movie Labyrinth came out. Oh. And I, I have it on cassette, actually, because we ever that, Oh, yeah. 90 minutes, I had him on the air. And, and the one reason I had him on the air was his daughter. So he's the oldest. He had six children. Heather was his youngest child. And they lived in Westchester. And she was a huge fan of LIR. And as Jim had a great relationship with David Bowie and Labyrinth, which is a very dark Muppet movie sure. when you see it. <laughs> um, she said to her dad, if you got to do promotion for Labyrinth, you got to go on LIR. Got a call from Henson Production saying Jim wants to come on the air. And I was like, is this a trick question? Mm. He showed up at eight in the morning with Heather. I actually, I can share a photo with, with you. I can send it to you if you want to put it on the screen. So he, um, he came into and, the studio. Uh-huh. Wow. He, he came, he drove from Westchester, came to beautiful downtown Hempstead, came up to mm-hmm. the penthouse, which we was <laughs> called, and he spent 90 minutes with me in the studio. He did all the voices. He did wow. Kermit. Animal, you know, animal, cookie monster. He talked about his relationship with Bowie. And I remember at the end of the interview, I said, you know, Jim, what you created with a sock in 1959, because that's all Muppet was, was a sock that evolved (laughs) over time. I said, one day you and I will no longer be here, but the Muppets will live on forever. And sadly, three years later, he Mm -hmm. died of a rare illness at LA Hospital with a heart ailment at the age of 51. Right. So I point back to that is probably my favorite interview because it was one non-musical, but was musical in the sense of him and his relationship with Bowie. Right. Talking to a Muppeteer that created things that from your childhood you'll never forget, right? And it all intertwined together. So that photo that I have is me with Jim, he's holding Kermit, (laughs) and his daughter Heather, and my newsman who sadly passed away a few years ago, Barry Ravioli. I'd be more than happy to send that to you. Yeah, and that, you know, it's funny you say Labyrinth. And well, for, it strikes me as interesting that, you you know, again, talking about how a different LIR was that you'd have a 90-minute interview on. Like, you wouldn't have that on, you know, most radio stations. It'd be a five-minute Well, clip. get the opportunity to have Jim Henson. It was like, he could have stayed for three hours if he wanted to yeah. because I was just curious about his musical taste. Now, the interesting thing is I used his daughter, Heather, as a focus group. So I asked Heather before I queued it up before him, but during a commercial break, I said, what's your favorite band? And she goes, my favorite band is XTC. Mm. And then Jim looks at me like, he goes, quote, what the hell kind of radio station is this? And I said, no, Jim. She said, XTC, <laughs> not ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> and then when we came back on the air from a commercial break, yeah. I played a song for Heather. And it was, I, I, think, I, I don't know, if it, I think it was Dear God, I think it was. Mm. And Jim actually said to me, at the end of the song, well, that's a pretty cool song. I said, you know what's <laughs> interesting, Jim? That was not supposed to be on any XTC album. That was actually the B-side to the single mm. Grass. And the record mm. labels almost did a cease and desist for us not to play it. Oh. But we said, but we bought it. That's a lot of, you know, that's the thing about the record labels. They would try and cease and desist. I'm like, how can you cease and desist your own release, you idiot, in England? Yeah. <laughs> and we bought it. There's no way. It wouldn't even uphold, you know? And that happened to me with R.E.M. I had Mike Mills come up. 
And I had bought the album document. I got for the Rough Trade in London. Because uh, we had an arrangement. It's not just the new releases, but it'd be new albums. And if, if it came out in England before it came out here, I said, we always said, just ship it. Just we'll pay for it. Just ship it. So here they come. It's Mike Mills, the guy from IRS Records. They got the single, the one I love. And I got the album. And the record guy goes, but we're here to play the single. I said, I'll play the single with Mike, but I'm going to play the album. He goes, you can't play the album. I said, I bought the album. I'll do a season. This is, you can do whatever you want. And Mike Mills is like, this is cool. Gonna play the, I played most of the album on the year. Iris hated it. Huh. But then if you hmm. realize that record labels got very smart after that about simultaneous releases, they realized the trick of buying first there and throwing off their marketing strategy. So I think we were kind of a testament. Wow. <laughs> Blowing up their strategy. Yeah, but, a non-simultaneous release. Between this and your comment earlier about uh, other radio stations maybe want to record Mars so they could play it themselves, I mean, to what extent was the radio business in the 1980s somewhat cutthroat? You know, it's funny in the movie No Way Dare to Be Different, we actually talk about taking millions of dollars from New York radio stations because our ratings started to increase. Mm-hmm. Now you got to realize for the national dollars, ratings is important. For the local folks, didn't matter. I mean, if we told people, you know, to show up at a club, 8,000 people showed up at a club. You know, it's like we told, it, told them to turn right or show up at an auto dealer, they showed up at an auto dealer. So the local advertisers knew the power of the format. Right. So they didn't care what the ratings were. But now you're talking about national dollars, you know, going after Budweiser, mm, national accounts. And now you're taking millions away from the New York stations and now you're pissing. Right. So a part of that conspiracy theory, too, about the political forces that put LIR out of business in terms of getting our FCC license pulled. Right. There were a lot of people, you know, hoping we would go away. And they were one of them because not that they had a hand in it, because that's a story in itself, but they were hoping we went away because we were taking millions away from them because our ratings were up big time. You know, it's interesting to think about uh, all the work that you did to discover new artists and get them on the air. And, you know, in, in some sense, you know, think, thinking about you too, or, or I think in, in the documentary, Howard Jones credits you with you, the first radio station in the U.S. that he, I think he worked with. There's nothing like that today, it seems like. You know, it seems, I was reading an article not too long ago where some uh, record executives were lamenting the fact that artists aren't cultivated anymore because you've got all these TikTok, quote unquote, one hit wonders, where they're popular on TikTok for 24 hours. You never hear from these people again. It's sad because there is no one really championing new music. It goes viral. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like Justin Bieber. I mean, this was a kid that just went viral yeah. and went viral fast. And that's the thing about social media. It's fast and it's furious. And when a, a great song is a great song is a great song. So I guess when you put it out there, and it may even be a demo, maybe not even finalized. You know, I mean, we used to get a lot of demos yep. of songs that weren't finalized, or the bands would say, hey, you know, could you sneak this one on? You know, like an example of that would be But Not Tonight from Depeche Mode, which is the B-side to Strip. That was not meant to be on that album at all. They forced that Seymour Stein, God bless his soul, passed away a few weeks ago. He forced the band to put that on there because it became a screamer of the week. Mm. They never expected that song to take off because it was a non-LPB side. And then they finally put it on the album. So we were paying attention to the B-sides because the B-sides, you know, a song like Dear God, right, Right. was not on the album. And those were the nuggets I was charged to find. Mm. Find me that great nugget that no one else will find that we could play. You know, like Cult Hero, I Dig You. That was the B-side to I Am a Cult Hero, but it was Robert Smith of The Cure, mm. right? And that's when he was trying to develop the band. He's trying to figure out 
you know, what was working, the chemistry between the band members, right? Um, I could go on and on about examples, but I think that's what we were trying to champion, right. the next thing. And we were always right, you know? I sure. think Dennis said we were batting 400, <laughs> if you want to use a baseball analogy, right? Some, some were hit and miss. Yeah. And some we felt really good about and really didn't take off. And some were novelty songs. We played a lot of novelty songs, like a total quello, I eat cannibals. Yeah. You know, to you and me, it sounds great after the third time. I could gag on the fourth because, <laughs> but that's the, see, we live and breathe it. And that's why we always had to be patient with the audience because they're not listening it, listening to it at the frequency that we are. Right. Because they may be in and out for a couple hours, you know, in the morning on their way to work, school, whatever, got a couple hours with us, you know, after school, after work, maybe later that night, you know, they're listening to the scream of the week because they're curious what's going to happen. So, you know, we were, I think we were probably living it a little too much and they were living it with us, mm -hmm. but we were always questioning, you know, should we hang with the song much longer? Is it burnt out? Is it too novelty? Yeah. You know, we're always questioning ourselves. And along those lines, I had read, and it just makes me sad that there's something like, I mean, it's, it seems almost impossible to do what you did back then. Well, in the good sense, music productions become democratized, right? Anybody, you can bypass record labels and all these middlemen to get your music, you know, out there, so to speak. But in the bad sense, we've got a lot of noise because, and I'll say this, you don't have to say this, I'm going to say this. Not all this music should be out there. Some of, most of it sucks. <laughs> and I read statistic that said something like, because of how easy it is for folks to get their music out there now, it's like 123,000 songs, new songs per day that are quote unquote released. I mean, I don't know how you, how we can find these gems like you did, you know, get hot off of a, a plane from Heathrow anymore. I think the key to this is that radio became so homogenized yeah. that these radio stations were really controlled by seven consultants. And that's the shame of it. You know, right? These are public airwaves. I think the reason we had our freedom was because the owner gave us the freedom. Think about if the owner of LIR, Elton Spitzer, did not give us the freedom and said, no, we're going to do a rigid tight, you know, tight playlist. You guys are not going to have the freedom that you have. And it was the opposite. He wanted us to be creative. He dared us to get better every day. Yesterday's show doesn't matter. Only thing that matters is th right now, this show. Right. So if we didn't have that ownership that encouraged that creativity, we would have been just another radio station, right? Right. But we didn't want to be that way. We knew that we had something special and we knew that we could capture it, package it, empower it, and the listeners would be there for us. Yeah. But we're always looking for the next thing. Had to. Yeah. And then people would ask me, okay, so Z100 in New York, mm -hmm. right? So finally they start playing Tainted Love from Soft Cell. Right. What do you do? Yeah. I said, well, we still play it, but we play a different version of it. We play the dance mix. Mm -hmm. If it's number one, now we play the dance mix of it because it's number one and we broke it. They know we broke it. And now we're playing a different version of it. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Now we wouldn't put it into power rotation like on our shows, but we would always remind them who is this, who is the station that broke it? Right. You know, we're the leaders, they're the followers. So we wanted to be the leaders in the market from a musical point of view. Right. And the clubs knew it, and that's why they gravitated to us. So in 1987, you talked about the license gets lost. We have some folks changing. You're, you're there, and my understanding is you maybe may intended to continue to be there, but Dennis is gone now, right? Dennis had left, yes. He did go to Jared Broadcasting two months before we went off the air. Um, that was a difficult situation during that time. It's kind of like a divorce. Yeah. You want to live with mom or dad? Mm. We thought that El Aero would continue because Elton told us El Aero would continue. 
He had achieved um, notoriety by, we thought, acquiring RCN at Riverhead. That was where El Arrow was supposed to go. There were things that happened behind the scenes. I think what happened with Elton, because I finally asked him about it later on, was the fact that the stock market crashed in October of 87. Mm-hmm. A lot of money dried up during that time. He had financial backers and the money went away and he admitted that to me eventually. And the thing is that we were hoping that he would find another place. And then finally in February of 88, the padlock came, Fed shut it down, IRS shut it down. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny, I, I get my social security statement. I said this in a public forum the other day, so I don't, I don't mind saying this, but there are two years, 1982 and 1983, where it said, I have zero income. Elton wasn't paying taxes and social security and things like that. We didn't know it. So every time I get my annual social security statement, I see those two zeros. <laughs> I think about it. And it doesn't matter now because yeah. I guess the way the formula works, they take your top 30 years of employment. So those two years don't matter in, in the mix of things, but it's just in, in the scheme of things. And we little nodded our heads because we all see the zero in our social security statement. So we were talking about that in a public forum the other night. So right. <laughs> that's funny. So it, it, it's interesting how, yeah, Dennis, and then Dennis brought me over to DRE. Um, didn't happen right away, but eventually I did. And uh, I'm glad I did. And I spent three years there. Right. And so you, you, as you mentioned, your, your career continued there, but you mentioned earlier that you've almost been with uh, uh, Sirius now for 20 years and having an opportunity yeah. to do what you did no, I think, 40 years ago. I think for the audience yeah. to realize that in 91, I left DRE full time to go into the business world. I went to Cap City's AVC. I went to Disney, went to Reed Elsevier, became a magazine publisher. Um, was a group publisher, a magazine later on in those years too, multi-channel news broadcasting cable. Uh, went to Cablevision, was a senior VP of advertising at Newsday, but all through my business side, right, I always had a second career. I still kept my hand in radio. I went back to DRE, which became LIR again, and I stayed with LIR until it was sold to Univision in 20, 2001. In 2002, um, so what happened was Sirius launched in February of 2002. Right. So I stayed with LRF in 2002. In May of 2003, they reached out to me and I started there May 27th, 2003. So I'm coming up on my 20th anniversary, uh, six days a week, four hours a day, loving every second of it. It's national radio, it's global radio. Right. With the merger, you know, I was a little nervous because you know what happens with mergers. Sure. But I survived the merger of Sirius and XM, thank God. And actually made the satellite more powerful. The satellite actually goes from Canada to Mexico, Costa Rica, the Caribbean, all the Caribbean and the 48 states. And then it's, you know, global on the app. So it's a pretty wide net from an FM and yeah. from what I'm used to. But I'm used to it and uh, I enjoy it every day. It's, I play with it. I have fun. I reminisce. I talk about what the bands are doing today. I talk about what I'm doing today. They like when I talk about myself, my family, my dog, the whole thing. So, um, yeah, 20 years coming up, make 20 stuff. What a compliment to you and the work that you did during the 1980s that Sirius, this brand new technology that, you know, no one knew what it was going to be, uh, would reach out to you and say, we'd like to do what, you, we'd like you to be you, be yourself, do what you've done. We, you know, we're familiar with your history. What is it like getting that call? Well, at first I didn't know because I didn't know what to expect. I, yeah. I knew about it. I had friends that were there, but I didn't know what to expect with satellite radio. Right. It's kind of like when Mark Goodman and you know Blackwood, Alan Hunter, they all went to MTV, right. right? They didn't know what to expect. It was a startup. Privately owned. It was way before Viacom acquired them. So 
I didn't know what the future was. And actually, they were called CD Radio. They had rebranded to Sirius at once. Mm. And they did a whole, you know, uh, big party at the Beacon Theater, Sting performed, and they they rebranded from CD Radio to Sirius Satellite Radio. And then eventually with the merger, it became Sirius XM Radio. Today, it's Sirius XM Pandora. So that was an acquisition that uh, Sirius XM went through too. So we have a Pandora channel. I actually have done two shows on Pandora right now. <laughs> Just kind of, someone asked, would you mind doing a couple of shows? But to me, doing a radio show like this is real radio, real time. It's almost like a podcast because sometimes I'll talk about the interviews I did in the 80s, but then I talk about what happened outside the interview. Right. You know, like if Peter Hook left the room, he had to take a phone call, he came back. Now I got them. He was at the time. <laughs> doing more and uh they settled but i mean telling the behind the stories <laughs> off mic stories um is always interesting i think for the audience to hear because sometimes they can't get enough of it oh yeah i try not to repeat myself that much too yeah now you have the distance of time too right so you can feel like you're safe safe to tell these stories now mm-hmm. oh yeah no i feel very safe to tell those stories and you know the thing about satellite too i could curse and drop four letter words mm-hmm. i choose not to i never have in 20 years because i don't think it's cool yeah. And I know there's a lot of moms and dads driving their kids to work. You'd be surprised how many younger children actually listen to the show. Right. So, um, you know, so I would never pull that part of cursing on the air and, uh, you know, to do it for the sake of doing it. Yeah. I don't think it's cool. You know, our, our podcast is called 1980s Now, in part because it seems like this weird sort of uh, oxymoron. But the, 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 the goal of our show is to talk about how things from the 1980s, the importance back then, but how they're connected to today. And it's a little unusual for me to think about it because, you know, we're, we're, we're at least 40 years out. We're going to be 50 years out at some point. But it seems like our celebration, our uh, recognition of the pop culture and the music of that era, it seems different than how we sell. In the 1980s, we weren't celebrating the 1930s music so or 1940s. Yeah. Uh, what is it about the 1980s that has had this uh, staying power and, and, and more? It's influence uh, even uh, on, on uh, today. I've only been asked this question once before, and it was actually on the 80s cruise. Mm-hmm. And I think spending eight days a week on the 80s cruise with 4,200 people, yeah. I have to say, of all the decades of music, I think the 80s was the greatest decade of all. Now I'm a little biased, but I, I've, I've lived through the 60s and the 70s. I've lived through the 90s. I love the 90s. You know, I love listening to Lithium, which is 90s grunge and more. Um, you know, the 2000s, the 2010s. You know, I'm a big fan of Coldplay. You know, a big fan of Pearl Jam. Um, Dave Matthews, I interviewed Dave Matthews at Paley Center, which is now called the, what was called the Museum of Television and Radio. It was the first interview that I actually recorded there. They have a radio studio there. So I've lived through different genres of music. I've interviewed Peter Tosh twice. It's, um, it's gratifying that in the 80s, we could play so many spectrums of music and it was not limited. We were playing ska, we were playing mm-hmm. punk, rock, dance, synth, goth, industrial, right? Ska, reggae. Um, we were playing rockabilly, right? Rock cats, straight cats, <laughs> uh, Robert Gordon, you know? So... If you look at the 80s, it was so many different genres. The only genre we really didn't play, though some songs have a country flavor to it, was really country. Yeah. But I think everything else, anything went, right? You yeah. know, there was some disco flavors in there too, Erasure, you know, celebrating Alba on that album. Or the influences or the covers, you know, bands like the Communards, you know, you know, covering a Temptation song or something like that. So I think the 80s brought it all together in one big mix. 
And I still think it was the greatest period and the greatest decade of music oh, ever. No arguments here. Well, especially I'm on your podcast, <laughs> but but I just, I mean, I have to say this from yeah. years of experience too. And I think oh. that's what we get on the 80s cruise is the fact that we relive it, we breathe it. It's the artists that we knew then are with us now in real time. I'm able to introduce them in concert. I'm able to interview them, mm -hmm. you know, like introducing the church, great band from Australia. They just released a new album called The Hypnagogue. And it's their studio album number 26. So this, to, I actually did a listening party with this, with this one, which was, it wasn't just, it wasn't just interviewing the band with Steve Kilby. It was actually playing four to five songs from the album that even I had not heard. Mm -hmm. And it's a concept album. And you see, when I prepare for an interview like that, and there's one other interview I got to mention to you too. Um, I Googled the word, the hypnagogue, couldn't find it. I said, Steve, what is the hypnagogue? I can't find the word. Well, we kind of made it up. I said, what's the word mean? He goes, the hypnagogue is that state of mind, you know, before you fall asleep where all the ideas flow and then you fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And that's the concept behind the album. You know, interviewing Kate Bush in 1985, you know, when Running Up That Hill had come out and now looking at what Kate has done, you know, what? Right. Stranger Things, yeah. a million dollars in episode three episode. Yeah. And sitting there waiting to interview her at CBS Records, I was number 12 of 14 people online. <laughs> I did my homework. Issues into astrology, and I opened up the interview with Kate. Have you ever met someone that's born on the same day, same day, 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 day as you, <laughs> July thirtieth? And her eyes opened up because I I've never met anybody born on the same day as me. And um, she, her, I was all downhill from there. I'll tell you that much. The song was originally called "A Deal with God," but CBS mm -hmm. Records was really nervous about that, and that's why the compromise was running up that hill subtitle mm -hmm. "A Deal with God." Right. So now a whole new generation has discovered Kate Bush. And look, she's nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I hope she gets in. Right. And I saw the BBC just interviewed her a month ago. I said, Kate, what are you up to these days? She goes, I'm gardening. <laughs> I'm collecting $3 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she was gardening. <laughs> I made it up about the three. Well, but yeah, we know what she was. That, yeah, it's yeah. not that far off. You can go to Variety.com and pull down that story. It's a yes. really good story. The backstory and how they got Kate Bush to agree yes. to do Stranger Things on Variety.com. Yeah. Yeah. I think we actually talked about that on our show and when, when, a few months ago. How did you get involved with the cruise? Greg and Chris from ECP, Entertainment Cruise Productions, had reached out to me through SiriusXM. I was aware of the 80s cruise because I knew Mark and Nina and Alan. And now I, I met downtown Julie Brown. She filled in for Nina on the cruise a couple of months ago. Uh, they reached out to me and said, love to have coffee with you. And I met with them at a restaurant right across the street from Madison Square Garden. Loved them. And we just, you know, struck an agreement. And uh, every year I'm on the cruise, I'm, I'm scheduled to be on the 2024 cruise, which leaves on leap year, February 29th. So uh, leaping into 2024 on the 80s cruise. So it'll be a lot of fun. And it actually, we're going to Aruba. Uh, we did the last cruise out of LA. They'd never done the cruise out of LA before. So this will be my fourth 80s cruise. Wow. Mm. And I believe this is the eighth 80s cruise. And these are the same folks, by the way, that do... The Star Trek cruise, there's a lot of thematic cruises they do. They do alumni cruise too. They turn the cruise around from Star Trek to the 80s cruise the night they were docking. They just turn it around that quickly. Wow. And uh, this time they had William Shatner on the cruise. And I said, what was that like? He's 91 years old. He said, oh, he was great. Except one guy from the audience, he agreed to do Q&A. Some guy goes, um, hey, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Kirk. <laughs> so in season two, episode oh, three, no. 21 seconds into the scene, you did this. No. Why? <laughs> 
And he goes, ain't you my granddaughter? <laughs> and it's funny, the guy in the 80s, because the captain was Captain Jane. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't even know. I, didn't, I would just had my wife and I, every time we go to get off the cruise, we go to the wrong side of the ship. The so water side, the you're getting off into the water? You know, <laughs> well, I, I could never remember what side of the ship. And every time we went to go to the port, I'd get off. I'd go to go off on the wrong side of the ship, so I'd have to walk to the other side of the ship. Right. So they let me walk through the second floor, which is where all the magic on a cruise happens. Like the, the, yeah. the passengers are not allowed on the second. So I'm walking through. I got my credentials. And this guy's walking up to me. He'll tell you he's just out of college. He goes, hey, uh, I know everybody in this boat. Who are you? I said, hey, I'm Larry the Duck from Sirius. I said, hey, man, how are you? I'm Captain James. I said, oh. you're the captain? <laughs> I'm picturing it's a short guy with cigar hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> No, the dude was like into the church and this and that. I said, I'm going to give you a shout out from the stage. And I said, and we were, we were in port when they played. And uh, I gave him a shout out and the place went nuts with the captain. He, he looked like he was just out of college. Yeah. And I said to him, did you meet Captain James Kirk on the ship? He goes, no. Nah. I said, that would have been so cool for Captain yeah. James and meet Captain James Kirk. And he never got to meet him. Thank you so much for joining us today, Larry. You, you are the living embodiment of everything that uh, we... You know, we aim to uh, focus on, share, appreciate, celebrate on our podcast, 1980s Now, because, again, we talk about what happened in the 1980s, how important it is, and how folks like yourself are continuing to carry on what was developed there. And you created, helped create this thing that we celebrate, and now today you're still help keeping it alive and spreading it, you know, to other generations who will in turn, you know, keep it alive and so on and so forth. And so I thank you for what you did in the 1980s and thank you for your continued uh, efforts today. Thank you. Well, I'm having fun and thank you for the warm words and the nice compliments. It's all about having fun. And you're right, a whole new generation that's, you know, when I go see the B-52s and I see a 16-year-old with a Morrissey t-shirt, I'm thinking to myself, see, influenced <laughs> by the parent, yeah. right? A great song is a great song is a great song. Look what Kate Bush has endured here, right? A whole new generation discovering Kate Bush. Yep. I mean, look at how many streams like went up 3000% like after the first episode that it aired. And uh, it's just a wonderful time to celebrate, wonderful period to celebrate. And I know you thank me. I'm going to thank you for keeping alive on this great podcast. You can't really overstate the role that Larry and LIR played in the 1980s. So much of the music that I loved during that decade, so much of that the music that defined the 1980s, distinguished it, distinguished it from the music that was popular in the 70s, and influenced the music that would be popular in the 90s and beyond, was because of the work that LIR did, uh, introducing us to those uh, different bands and songs, etc. Music that I DJed with was songs that were first on LIR, you know, and then I would be playing at uh, a high school or ultimately a club at some point. Anyway, what station did you listen to growing up? Let us know. We're going to be talking about radio, our experience with radio in the 1980s on our very next new episode, which will be out in just a few days because radio was ubiquitous uh, throughout the decade. It played as such an important role as background, as score, as a music score to our lives and so many memories, so many things for me. I know personally, I look forward to hearing from John and Kat uh, as to their memories about radio during that time as well. Hey, speaking of them, on behalf of uh, Kat and John, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. <laughs>